Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 7. We start a new chapter today in Acts chapter 7, and I've entitled our Bible study, Turning Accusations into Opportunities. Turning Accusations into Opportunities, which is exactly what Stephen does here in chapter 7. He doesn't become defensive. He doesn't try to defend himself. But when false accusations, I mean, they literally paid people to lie about him. And when these lies came, instead of, you know, and I I don't know how you feel, but when I'm attacked or when I'm falsely accused, my natural response is to defend myself. My natural response is to try to convince you otherwise. Stephen doesn't do that here. Rather, he takes the opportunity of all these accusations, he, he takes this as an open door to share the gospel in a very powerful way, in a very unique way. And he took advantage of this opportunity because he learned something that you and I are still learning, or perhaps you have learned, and it's simply this. We need to learn to be faithful in all things. God is looking for faithfulness. Faithfulness in all things, big or small. Now, I don't even like the language of big or small things when it comes to the things of God, but for the sake of understanding, there are things that have greater significance at times or greater output or or a greater or smaller thing. Certainly, some things can be more important than other things, but at the same time, everything that's done for the Lord is important and valuable. You know, the question is even asked in Zechariah, you can jot it down, Zechariah chapter 4, the question is asked, for who has despised the days of small things? And I can answer that question for you. Almost all of us have had our days when we've looked at something and said, you know, I don't know, this is not big enough, this is small, it's maybe insignificant or unnecessary. And I have to say that I've met far too many people over the years that are wanting great things for God. And because of that, they turn their life into a time of waiting for great things for God. And they wait around for God to open that big door and to do that big thing. And all the while, they end up spending their whole lives never really thinking that what they're doing is important or significant. And in reality, they even miss out on serving God because they're waiting for that big thing. But the big thing that you're waiting for is what you're involved in right now, being faithful in what's before you. And that's where Stephen is. Stephen, we learned about him and we met him when there was a great problem in the early church. And if you're not paying close attention, you may not even think it was that big of a problem. There were some widows that feeling neglected and they started complaining and murmuring and, and they were in upset because they were seeing, you know, they were seeing others have things that they didn't have. And, you know, like, hey, just go ahead and give everyone the same thing and that would solve it. But that wasn't the issue. It was a deeper issue. It was such a deep issue that the leaders of the church said, you know, you need to find some wise men to take care of this because this is a serious problem. The very essence of the problem can be summarized by looking how the early church was. In the beginning of the early church, they're selling things, they're selling everything that they have, and they're bringing it to the church, and they're giving, giving, giving. But within the just a few short months, you find now no longer are those everyone talking about giving. Now they're talking about what they don't have, and they're complaining about it and murmuring about it. I do believe it was a real issue. And I do believe there was neglect taking place. But what was necessary was these godly men. Remember in verse 3 in chapter 6, they needed to find men that had a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. And Stephen was one of them. He was called to a ministry, you could say, behind the scenes. Ministering to ladies that were neglected, arguing. And we don't know in the timing of their widowhood, but there's a good chance that some of these widows were still deep in grief and sorrow. 
and, and really trying to handle the newness of their life. So a, a neglect could be very large for them and very hurtful. And God used Stephen. It says in verse 8 of chapter 6 that Stephen was full of faith and power. And he did great wonders and signs among the people. And it was in this great wonders and signs that notice in verse 9, there were some from the synagogue that came to dispute with him and argue with him. And we covered this in our last study. So here you have Stephen. He's called to a wonderful ministry of serving widows. But you have to understand he wasn't called to some great church or to notoriety. Or, or think about it this way. You know, they didn't have these things in the first century. But to, to put it into terms today, he wasn't called to some YouTube ministry with millions of followers. He, he wasn't called to a mega church with hundreds of campuses. He, he wasn't called to be some best-selling author and to be on the platform of all these large churches. His calling was to serve women in the local church behind the scenes. And he was faithful to it. And it was in his faithfulness that God now opens tremendous doors. But it's not the way that we might think. The doors open for Stephen through spiritual warfare and attacks and lies and false accusations. It says in verse 10 of chapter 6, they weren't able to resist him. And that's what led them to try to destroy him. And you'll recall that the summary of their accusations was that Stephen was blasphemous. And you know, they had to do something because God was using Stephen in a great way. They had to respond because their rejection and rebellion toward Jesus needed a response. They just couldn't let it go. The enemy doesn't just settle down. He, he, when he sees progress, he rises up. And in the accusation, remember, they accused him of blaspheming God. They accused him of blaspheming Moses and the law, and they accused him of blaspheming the temple. And it's in the faithfulness of Stephen that God gave him more. Remember this, Jesus taught us that the reward for faithfulness is more. And the consequence of unfaithfulness is whatever you have will be taken from you. And guess who it will be given to? The person that is faithful. So be careful that you don't look at something in your life as too small or insignificant, but instead respond with faithfulness, allowing God to use you. So here in chapter 7, Stephen has been brought before the religious council, the, the supreme court of the day. It's a very intimidating time. Uh, uh, 70 people there laid out in a semicircle, and now you have to face all these accusations with their eyes and, and how they're giving you stink eye, and they're coming before you, and they literally have your life in their hands. And Stephen is there ready to answer. Now, I want you to consider, we won't really get into it at all in our study today, but I want you to put this in the back of your mind that as Stephen is sharing this message, there is a guy there that Stephen knows nothing about. He has no idea how God is going to use him. He's just faithful. But there is a guy there listening who will be troubled by this scenario the rest of his life. And his name is Saul. And he's from an area known as Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is in, the, in this moment listening to Stephen. And we'll see him, you can read ahead in the rest of chapter 7, and you can see him there. This will have a profound effect on his life, which leads us to one of the applications that we have for today, and it's simply this. You don't know how God's going to use your life. You don't know who's watching you. You don't know who's listening to you. You don't know how important you are to some people. Even today, you might walk into the room today and go, you know, Ed, I'm not really that important. I'm not really that significant. I don't really have that notoriety. You can list all of the things and yet understand this. God is using your life. He is using your life and he will use your life. Pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 7. Actually, verse 15 of chapter 6. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, are these things so? Th this is the open door, this question. This is the open door. And he's basically just saying, the high priest gets up, hears everything, and he just gets up. Are these accusations true? 
Again, if you were there, if I was there, I have to think I would might try to defend myself. I go, these guys are out of their mind. They don't know what they're talking about. Why would you even listen to them? But Stephen doesn't do that. Notice verse two, this is his answer. His answer to the question, his answer to the accusations. He said, men and brethren, fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. The accusation, you're blaspheming God. So where does Stephen start? With God. And he refers to him as the God of glory appearing to our Father. This is our God. You're accusing me of blaspheming God, but that's my God. And I love and worship him. Far from blaspheming him, Stephen is demonstrating respect and reverence. This is our God. Verse 3. And he said to him, speaking to Abraham, get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of that land of the Chaldeans, and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. This is a fascinating place to be in the Bible because this is exactly what we're studying in much more depth on our midweek Bible study. We're going through Genesis verse by verse. We just started looking at the life of Abraham and the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The call to this pagan man was get out of it. Get out of this pagan city, this pagan land, and I'm gonna send you to the promised land. And you're gonna have descendants that you can't even count or number. And everyone in the world is gonna be blessed by your life, Abraham. That's the call. But notice it says he dwelled in Haran and he left with his father. This dwelling in Haran, many people see as a partial obedience, which by the way, whenever you think of partial obedience, I want you to understand partial obedience is disobedience. And so there he is dwelling in Haran with his father and it wasn't until after his dad died that he left. Now many look at this and say he lost about 20 years of his life spinning his wheels in Haran. God still uses it. But he was never told. He was told to leave everyone behind. But he took them anyways. There's just no room for compromise in our lives, church. It's just not going to lead you to where you think you want to go. Compromise always begets more compromise. It always leads you away from God. I mean, even, and I'm talking about not the kind of compromise where you meet in the middle with someone, where, where you're trying to work things out and you give up a little, they give up a little. That's always needed in relationships. When I'm speaking of a spiritual compromise, not taking a stand for what you know is right, being able to walk in the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, being careful not to respond with partial obedience, but immediate full obedience, that, that you would respond to what God is speaking to you and what he's leading to you in the voice of the Lord with immediate full obedience, leaving all the consequences to God. Everything that's going to happen, you're going to leave to God because you trust him with your life. Listen, disobedience and compromise will always rip you off. It always steals from you. It steals your vibrancy. It steals your faith. It steals your tenacity, your zeal. And so be careful. Well, notice, it says in verse 6, God spoke in this way that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land and that they would bring him into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And then he gave him a covenant of circumcision so that Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. This biblical history lesson of the forefathers is a very important one because the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers here, and the Jewish people in general revered and respected their forefathers, even to the point where they improperly worshipped them and gave them reverence that only belonged to God. So this connection point that Stephen is using in answering his accusations is to remind them of their history. Because their history led to where they are right now. The people that he is answering has rejected Messiah. That's where they're at. Don't forget, they have rejected Jesus Christ and they have approved of his crucifixion. And they have neglected and they have want nothing to do with the work of God through the early church. They see the church as a threat. So they want to destroy the church. 
And the response of Stephen in the desire to even to destroy him is to lovingly share the message of hope, tying it together with their history. Notice he says now in verse 9, the patriarchs, he's broadening the history. They became envious and sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And a famine and a great trouble came all over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. So when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers first. So he moves right into the patriarchs and then to Joseph toward the end of the book of Genesis. And he talks about this season of famine that moved. Can I just say that famines and troubles and difficulties will move you. They will move you. They will move your thinking. They will move your actions. And God uses troubles to get our attention. He, moves, he uses troubles to get our attention. And this is a very practical thing. A fam- this is a real famine, a lack of food. Death could ensue. And when they found out that Egypt had food, and you remember, if you study your Bible, you remember the reason they had food is God raised up Joseph to be leader there, and he's been saving food for many years. God is in the middle of all of this. When Jacob hears, God is going to use the famine, use Jacob's hunger and his, his desire to take care of his family. He's going to use all the pain in Joseph's life, all the difficulty that he experienced now that he's in charge, second in command in Egypt, and he's going to bring them together for his purposes. I don't want you to miss this phrase when it says in verse 9 that Joseph was sold into Egypt, which even in that, that phrase alone speaks of great trauma, great pain, great difficulty. Joseph experienced great trauma, great pain, great difficulty. And what does the next phrase say? But God was with him. That is a word from the Lord to you today. Great pain, great sorrow, great difficulty. And as a believer in Jesus, God is with you. He hasn't forgotten you. He's ready to help you. It says in verse 10 that there's a deliverance available to you. You have to understand, sometimes we equate deliverance with like we're going to be completely healed and never feel bad again. But that can't be the definition of the word here in the Hebrew or the Greek because Joseph's life still had a painful past. It didn't go away. It didn't get erased. He didn't continue to live his life and go, oh, you know, now my path. Like he carried that. It formed and made him who he was. When God redeems or delivers, it doesn't mean that he removes the past. It means that he uses it for his glory. Oh, will you experience the comfort of God? Yes. Will you continue to grow in his grace? Yes. The deliverance of God doesn't mean that you're going to not have a past, but it does mean that you will find God growing greater than your past. And Joseph would give us that testimony today, even as Stephen is telling these guys, hey, you remember Joseph, what his brothers did to him? That's our fathers. There's a whole history lesson here of rejection and rebellion and pride and arrogance among the God followers. And it's, it would be easy for us to look back and say, oh, well, you know, look at those guys and look what the, how they responded and look how they treated God. No, 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 this is our history. There's pride and arrogance even in the room right now. There's rebellion right now. There's resistance to the work of the Holy Spirit. Even now that God is calling you saying, why? Why continue to live that way? What do you believe you're going to gain by continuing to rebel against the voice of the Lord? I want you to notice something else here with Stephen, and that is as he shares, I don't want you to miss his tactfulness, and his respect. It's very important, church, that you learn how to live in a very dark, difficult world with tact and respect for the people that you're talking to. Tact and respect for the people that are in front of you. Let's be clear. The message of the gospel is a very offensive message. People will be offended when you bring them to the cross 
and you remind them of their sin and you point to the Savior who died on the cross and was buried and rose. Yet people will be offended. Who of us really want to talk about our own faults and failures? There is an offense with the gospel. Unfortunately, there's also many times an offense on how people share it. Like, it's not the gospel that's the offense. It's the person. It's the person just, you can't forget, church, that the whole goal of sharing is that the person you're sharing it with listens to you. And so you want to be very careful how you share. You want to be very careful on the words that you use. You want to be very careful to respect the person for who they are, created in the image of God. That the message of the gospel always flows through a man or a woman that loves God with all their heart, soul, and mind and loves their neighbor as themselves. Agape love is the bridge. I, I, Paul even put it this way, even as he shared very, very difficult things in the book of Romans. You know what Paul said? He said, don't you know that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance? Did you, have you forgotten, I think is the phrase that he uses. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Stephen here knows his audience. He knows his audience because it can be so easy to offend others in our zeal and our desire to make a point our desire to win an argument, our to, we get so emotional over something and forget that, hey, it's not our zeal or emotion that's going to save anyone. It's the message of the gospel. And for the message to go forth, we need to learn. You could even say it this way. We need to learn how to dial it down in tactfulness and respect so that we make a connection point with someone to share with them the reality of the brokenness of their life over sin. And the reality, even today, perhaps you're listening to me right now, this is the reality. The Bible says that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's just no way around that. I know that it's easy to try to spend your whole life trying to avoid the truth that you have sinned against a holy and a righteous God. But you have. And so have I. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Like you're not going to get away with it. Just like your job. You know, when you work your job, you expect a paycheck. Those are your wages. You earned it. And so when it comes to the sinful actions with God, what we've earned through our sin is eternal death. I know it's very easy to talk about heaven. Everybody loves heaven. Everybody thinks they're going to heaven. But I want you to understand, as real as heaven is, hell is equally real. And in eternity with God is is also there is a truth of an eternity apart from God. And the difference between the two is what have you done with Jesus Christ? Because Jesus has come as the bridge in love to die on your behalf. The perfect for the imperfect. The sinless for the sinful. So that today, if you would turn away from your sin, the Bible word for that is repent. It's a beautiful word. If you will repent of your sin... God will forgive you of your sin. Imagine that. And none of us deserve that. <laughs> I mean, which one of us go, yeah, I deserve that. No, no. Don't ask God for what you deserve. Ever, never, ever. But rather fall upon his mercy and his grace and how much he loves you, cares for you. Stephen is very tactful here. Church, please learn tact. Grow. Learn about the people you're sharing with. Get involved in their lives. And let the Holy Spirit use you in great ways. Stephen's going to say some hard things. You'll read ahead to the end of the chapter. I encourage you to do that. And you'll see they get so cut to the heart and they get so mad at him that they start, they start gnashing their teeth at him like, a, like children. These are grown men. They're so angry with him. But it wasn't because of his delivery. It wasn't the way he shared because he is one of them except that he embraced Messiah. So a famine comes, causes movement, God's using it. And it says in verse 13, it says, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. I love that, this second time. The first time Joseph wasn't recognized. The second time he was. Joseph is a beautiful picture and type of Jesus Christ. And just like Jesus wasn't recognized and rejected the first time, he will be fully recognized in his second coming. And he's giving them a little Bible lesson that God has taught them 
all along. Do you guys remember in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus was on, met those guys on the road to Emmaus? They're all upset. They're all just concerned. Uh, they, they, are, they, they heard about the death of Jesus and, and they don't have him anymore and they're all bummed out. Jesus comes alongside of them. He's kind of concealed from them. But what does he do in Luke 24? He gives them a Bible study from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Malachi. He walks them through all the scriptures and he reveals to them all along the way all of the types, all of the prefigures, everywhere that he was throughout the Old Testament. Stephen's doing the same thing. He's showing, hey, you know what? It was the second time. It was the second time Joseph was recognized speaking of the type and picture that he is to Jesus Christ. So the summary here so far, Stephen with great tact and reverence, says, I'm not blaspheming God. I respect Abraham. I respect Joseph. I respect our patriarchs. But I also, as Stephen's sharing, he wants to make sure you, that the, the religious rulers understand that their rejection and rebellion is not new because it has been the pattern of the spiritual leaders of Israel up to this point. Verse 7, uh, where are we? Verse 14. Joseph sent and called his father Jacob, and all his relatives to him, 75 people. Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they, they were carried back to Shechem, laid in a tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, verse 20, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. Now he turns a corner and talks about Moses because he's been accused of blaspheming Moses and the law. Along the way, he's quoted the law already, and he'll quote it again. But now he's specifically going to say, hey, I don't, I'm not blaspheming Moses and the law. I respect him. And God now is taking this season and building a nation in Egypt. And during this time of God using this difficult situation as they multiplied in Egypt and a new Pharaoh came and enslaved them and abused them and even made them kill their own babies, it was in this time Moses was born. And you know, we just can't fathom. It's so hard in the midst of great trial and difficulty to think that anything good could come out of it. Anything. You know, when we read Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when it says, we know all things work together for good, for those that God is working all things together for good, that for those that love him and called according to his purpose, we, we automatically, especially in times of deep grief and pain, we automatically read that. We may not use the exact word, but we say, you know, I know God's working most things together for good, but not this. I don't ever see how God could use this. Or God is working some things together for good because this can't be redeemable. And you think of what would happen of a nation under intense slavery and abuse and a murderous pharaoh. What good could come out of that? Well, of all the good that came out of it, I'll tell you, Moses came out of it. Moses was born in Egypt in this time. And God can bring even the worst situations, he can bring good out of them. Beauty for ashes, the Bible says. And so Moses is born, and I want you to notice this. This is amazing. It says in verse 20, At this time Moses was born, and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months, but when he was set out. That little phrase refers to his mom making a little basket and putting their own little three-month-old baby in it and letting him float away on the Nile. Instead of killing him, as was required, there was a resistance 
of the authorities, of the godless instructions of the authorities, there was a quiet resistance to make this little, uh, this little basket, cover it, put their baby, and just let it float on the waters, trusting God with her baby. Now, when it says he was set out, sometimes that basket is referred to, in the old King James, I think it's called an ark of bulrushes. And you think, where did it come? Where did the idea come to make a basket and to cover it and to let it float on the waters of the Nile? While judgment was coming, there is this little ark floating around with a baby to be saved on the water. Where do you think that came from? I'll tell you where I think it came from. I think it came from Moses' mom and dad knowing the truths of God's faithfulness to Noah, being in an ark, instructed to build an ark that will float on the waters of judgment. I believe they are following through by faith of something that God had done in the past. He was in a little ark on the waters, and he was rescued. I believe his mom and dad were a student of the scriptures. Now, of course, they didn't have the Bible like we have today. They didn't even have the scrolls yet. But what they did have was the carrying on of what was shared from generation to generation. Which today, even though we have the Bible today, it's the full, complete work of God. It is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. You and I still have a responsibility to pass it on. Pass it on to our kids and our grandkids. We pass it on to our family, our neighbors. We we have the authoritative word of God, but it's our responsibility to pass it on. But before we can ever pass it on, the Bible has to have a a preeminent place in our lives. And I know you might get tired of this because I share it over and over and over again. And then I was reminded, if you are tired of me saying it, that means you're hearing me every time I share it. So it's okay, be tired about it. I'm gonna keep telling you. And it's simply this. If you want to grow in any kind of maturity following Jesus Christ, you must be a man or a woman of God's word. It's not going to come any other way. It's not going to come through sermons, as important as sermons are. They're a tool, but it's not like being in the word for yourself. It's not going to come in some beautiful song that catches your heart and praises God. That's not going to bring the kind of spiritual maturity you're looking for. You have to be in God's word every day. Read your Bible and pray every day. How is it that this came to heart and to light in Moses' mom, but that she knew about God's faithfulness with Noah? And and thinking, if God was faithful with Noah, then he'll be faithful with me. I, I will cast my lot with God. I will trust him. I won't try to fight Pharaoh. I won't try to run away. I just know that God has done this before, and he can do it again. And I trust him with my life. I trust him with my baby, and I just know God has a plan for him. Uh, God has spoken to me. And, And where does that come from? How does faith get built? But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It it is something that you must do, church. You're only hurting yourself, and as a result, hurting us as a church. We aren't gaining and getting from you what could come from you if you are a man of the word. Your kids are losing out because you're not a woman of the word. Your marriage is suffering because you're not in the Word together and praying. I mean, you think about it, you just, it's not because you have to, some religious duty to be a good little Christian. This is not at all the direction that God gives. It's not because we have to and we want to be good little Christians. It's because we get to and we want to be strong and mighty men of God and women of God for what He has for us. And so we wake up in the morning. And we're so grateful. I mean, you just think about, it. God, I, I'm alive today. I can't believe, here I am. And now, God, my ears are attentive to your word. And you open it up. Or, you know, we have technology now, because I, I think, well, some of like, you know, I, 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 when I say sometimes, okay, you need to be a student of the word, immediately people that were bad students go, I don't want to be a student of the word. I'm a horrible student. Okay, calm down. We don't want you to be like you were in high school again. That's not... We're not going to test you and quiz you because that's not the kind of student I'm speaking of. The kind of student I'm speaking of is you want to learn. You just want to learn about your heavenly father. 
You want to learn about his character and his nature. You want to learn a true story of someone in the past that might relate to your life right now in the 21st century. You might even want to think, you know, man, God has done this before. I need him to do it in my life right now. And in the word, you wake up grateful and then you go, but God, I'm alive to grow in you. And you start, speak to me today. And you can read the Bible. We even have technology today where you can download the version Bible app, Y-O-U. And there are so many versions of the Bible there. Most of them, it'll read to you. It'll read to you. You can just play it on your phone and start listening to the Bible, saturating yourself with the Word of God. That's the only place where spiritual growth will come. Notice in verse 22, it says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. But, verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. This is a beautiful phrase. It came into his heart. What came into his heart? The desire to be a deliverer. God's call upon your life exists right now, believer. It is in your heart. God wants you to come to an awareness of what your destiny is to serve him with your life. Moses was awakened to it. He's so smart. He, he is so learned. He went through all the education of, of the Egyptians. He, he knows all that he needs to relate, to be in that position of the government. He has everything he needs God has given him. But you want to know where it was really at in his life? It wasn't all his education in Egypt. It was God speaking to his heart. And he already knows he's a deliverer. The problem is he got the timing wrong. Notice verse 24. He saw one of the people suffer, one of them. He speaks of, you guys know the story, he saw uh, an Egyptian and a Jew, an Israeli, fighting one another. That's what this is referring to. So he saw one of the Israelis, uh, one of the followers of God, suffer wrong, and he defended him and avenged him that oppressed, and he struck down the Egyptian. That's a nice way of saying he murdered the guy. So there was a fight going on between a Jew and an Egyptian, and he murdered the Egyptian. Really thought he got away with it. Really thought he was doing the right thing. He really thought he was going to be the deliverer. Notice, he supposed, verse 25, that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you guys are brethren. Why do you do wrong to one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And at this saying, verse 29, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he had two sons, and when 40 years had passed. Pause right there. The life of Moses, sensing in his heart a calling, and yet, unfortunately, as he senses his calling, he sees the oppression, he wants to jump in and makes a big mistake. You could say that Moses acted with presumption, which teaches us a very important lesson. Not only do we need to be men and women of God's word and prayer, but truly the effectiveness in service and ministry and life is humility. Humility is the place of strength. It's not a valued thing in our culture, in the world today, but it is very valued by God. Humility is required in the person that God uses. Moses here jumps ahead of God, tries to accomplish the spiritual work and deliverance of God. He is going to be used, but he chose to do it in his own strength, in his own wisdom, and it led to 40 years in the desert. You know, the desert is often referred to as a picture of dryness. 40 years of dryness. 40 years, you could say, on the backside of the desert. 40 years of anonymity. He makes the most of it, of course, but he spins his wheels, just like Abraham. Abraham spins his wheels for 20 years. Moses spins his wheels. Unfortunately, Joseph had delays because of the sin of other people because sin always brings delays to the will of God being fulfilled in your life. And 40 years in the desert, I don't know about you, but I don't want to waste any more of my life at all, ever. Just being in Tennessee recently and teaching a men's conference for them, we talked a little bit about the journey from Egypt to the promised land when they were delivered. 
And that, if you measure it and people do the mathematics on it, it would have taken a group that size about 11 or 12 days to get from Egypt to the promised land. 11 or 12 days. But because of faithlessness in a few, it took them 40 years. And the first generation didn't even enter in. They didn't get to go in because of faithlessness. And now Moses, because of pride and presumption, he's going to spend 40 years on the backside of the desert. It won't be wasted. He's going to get a degree. He's got all the degrees of Egypt, but now he's going to get an important degree, the backside of the desert degree. And he's going to learn what it means to depend upon God. He's going to learn what it means to trust God. He's going to learn what it means to wait upon the Lord so that his strength might be renewed. And somebody once said, and I'll quote, it's been said of the life of Moses that he spent his first 40 years becoming somebody. He's educated in Egypt, rises to the occasion. The next 40 years of Moses' life was used by God to show him that he was really a nobody. And the final 40 years of his life was used of God to reveal to the world that God can take a nobody and make him a somebody in the grand scheme of his plan for the earth. So you divide his life into three 40s. And you know, I don't know what part, if you're what third of your life you're in, but whatever third of your life you're in, make it count for the Lord. You don't have years to waste in the desert. You don't have years to throw away. And even if you look at it and you go, well, that's where I've been the last 40 years. Well, then repent today and get back to the Lord. Come on back and serve him in humility and brokenness and learn from all that you have experienced in your desert experience. Not only that, notice, as he says, after the 40 years, verse 30, had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush. So this is cool. In his desert experience, number one, God appeared to him. And then secondly, verse 31, Moses saw it. So you, you want to stay attentive. Don't just give up in the desert. Stay attentive. Watch. And then notice, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, verse 31, the voice of the Lord came to him. God speaks in the desert. God's voice never ceases. And he speaks in the desert, even the desert of your life today. And notice what he says, verse 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And this is so cool, verse 34. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Another pattern of God that Stephen is sharing is the delivering power of God. He is a delivering God. I, I, I'm so encouraged by this. In the midst of the difficulty in Egypt, he, the Bible says, God says, I have certainly seen. That's not how it feels when you're in the midst of difficulty, is it? When you are groaning toward God and desperate in prayer. One of the reasons why you're groaning and desperate in prayer is because you believe God doesn't hear you. One of the reasons when you're in that prolonged season and you're so desperate and you're begging God, one of the thoughts that pop up is, you know, if I pray louder and I pray harder and I have nowhere else to turn and God doesn't hear me and God doesn't see me and then God doesn't care and there's just this battle in your mind, the Bible says, even those in Egypt, how do you think those in Egypt felt? Making bricks and and out in the hot sun, and, and basically working with as, as slaves in every sense of that word. No doubt, they're like, God's forgotten us. God doesn't care. We're groaning and hurting, and where's our God? And the Bible says, in all of that, I have certainly seen. God sees, and he hears, and he acts. So continue like that persistent widow that Jesus taught us about. Keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking, because God sees and God hears. Well, it says in verse 35, Moses, whom they first rejected the first time, remember they rejected him the first time, but the second time they receive him as deliverer. Again, a picture and a type of Christ. Moses they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? 
is the one that God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to them in the bush. The issue of the, of the council is they rejected Jesus Christ the first time. That is not unique. They rejected Joseph the first time. They rejected Moses the first time. It's not unique. It's exactly the pattern of their life. And then he says, he brought them out, verse 36, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, in the wilderness 40 years. And this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. Now he goes back and quotes the law, the one they said he's blaspheming. He says, hey man, according to Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet going to be raised up. It's going to be like Moses. And this is the one already the Spirit of God is planting the seeds. The one that was raised up was the one they crucified. And if you're listening to him, you're just kind of tracking along. They don't get mad yet because of his reverence and respect for them. Verse 38, this is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles and gave them to us. I respect the Bible, he's saying. I respect the law. Whom our fathers, verse 39, would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Which, by the way, they were delivered from Egypt physically, but their hearts were still there. Which is a warning to us. Your physical proximity is important, but what's more important is your heart. Because you can be delivered for something and still long to go back to it. And you want to be very, very careful because where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And here they are, they're delivered, but then they wanted to go back. Remember, you Bible students, you remember, they're like, oh, I missed the onions and I missed the leeks and, and they forgot all about the oppression and the difficulty. They, they were looking at the manna and the provision of God. And I don't want anything to do with this. I want to go back because their hearts were there. And it's always, the, the heart of the matter in your life is always a matter of your heart. It's not just the outward. Churches that go after and change your behavior, change your behavior, change your behavior. No, this, I would just say this. You change your heart, God will change your behavior. You just come as you are. God will deal on the inside out and you'll become someone you don't even know who God wants you to be yet. But you're always working, trying to look good on the outside, always doing things for appearances, but your heart is far from God. There's a word for that. It's hypocrisy. You want, just give your heart to the Lord today. Just surrender to him. Just submit your life to him. And he will do the work in you. Kind of like Moses. It says that, God, that, God, that, that the idea was put into his heart to be a deliverer. You know, it, it, he heard something in his heart. Like he received it. It reminded me of the, of the truth in, I think it's Philippians, where Paul talks about God working in us both to will and to do. So he changes our hearts, our desires, and then gives us the power to carry on. So encouraging. Now, come back as we close. It says in verse 40, they said to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Again, another failure. These are the forefathers. These are the people you look up to. These are the people with Moses. And they were idolatrous. Even as many in the council were idolatrous themselves. It says in verse 41, they rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And then God turned, gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets. Do you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years of wilderness? O house of Israel, yes, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, images which you made to worship, but I'm going to carry you away beyond Babylon. They were full-on idolatrous. Moloch was a horrible god, an angry god that needed to be appeased. He was actually the god of excess and success. You could say he was the god of materialism today. And the way that he was worshipped is that Moloch required the sacrifice of your firstborn. And very different than the worship of Moloch today where babies are aborted in the womb, they would offer full-grown babies or the babies, they were offered delivered babies out of the womb. 
and they would offer him up on the statue of Moloch. Statue of Moloch was a statue kind of with arms out like this, and they would, it was a very short one, they would have him out there, and they would heat it up red hot, and then they would bring their babies and place them on the arms of that statue Moloch to sacrifice their kids in the name of success, in the name of materialism. We kind of look back at generation and go, how primitive, how idolatrous, but our generation is worse. The sin of the sickness of killing babies is worse today than it ever has been. Look, church, the reality of life for us as the church is to be able to speak the truth in love, to be able to live a life of integrity and honesty. You know, it's one thing for the church to decry, I can't believe the divorce rate, I can't believe the divorce rate, when the divorce rate in the church is higher than it is in the culture. It starts in your own house. Remember what the Bible says? Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And so maybe, as I share that today, you might have a divorce in your past. It must be your last. It must be it. It, you, You can't go backwards. Your voice is only as strong as the character and integrity that you carry in your life. Your voice is only as strong as is you live out the life of Christ in a godless, dark culture and society. Words are cheap. Lives are valuable. And when words come from a life of character and integrity, with tact and respect, people listen. Because it's very rare to meet someone like that in our culture today. It's very rare to meet someone that leads with love, that leads with respect and care and concern. And so we look at Stephen here, he's encouraging to me, this is where we're going to pause today, and we'll pick up and finish the chapter next time. And you can see his reward. It ticks these guys off. They end up killing him. He's the first martyr of the church. But until then, he's taking advantage of every breath of his life. And in this, behind the scenes, there, don't forget, there's this guy Saul, watching and listening to everything. And God is going to use Stephen to encourage Saul. And we'll get to that in another study. So Father, thank you for the word that you have for us today, strong and stirring, encouraging and comforting, and all of the above. As we prepare our hearts now for a time of communion, let our hearts be prepared. Let them be readied. I wonder today how many people, Egypt being a type of the world, they've left the world, but their heart's in the world. I just pray for deliverance, God. I pray for comfort. I pray, God, that... I pray, God, for the comfort that comes even even as we face hardship and difficulty that you would be our strength, the joy of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.